Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I did some yoga this morning. Did you? I did. Today is going to be a crazy yoga day because I did vinyasa yoga this morning and I'm going to do acro mm-hmm. yoga tonight. Oh, back on the acro yoga train. So I don't think I'm, I don't think you told the story on this podcast what happened. Oh yeah, you're right. To you uh, a few weeks ago. So acro yoga is partner yoga and there's a base and there's a flyer and the base is usually laying on the ground with their legs up in the air and the flyer is balanced on the base's feet generally. And a couple weeks ago I was flying and the guy who was basing me was much too small for me and we didn't have a spotter and we tried a thing and we failed and then we tried it again and the second time it failed more catastrophically and he sort of accidentally (laughs) dropped me on my head. Oh Um, my gosh. I basically did like a back roll, like a backward somersault while my head stayed on the ground and I heard all the vertebrae in my neck pop and I sat up pretty scared. It felt okay, but like it hurt enough and I was like, like I couldn't turn my head and I couldn't look down and it was scary enough that I went to the ER just to get it CAT scanned. That was fine. Turns out it was okay. There was no like bone damage, no spinal damage, didn't have a concussion. So it turned out okay, but it was definitely a scary moment. Yeah, that's that does sound scary. So how long did it take to like feel like you're back to normal? I wouldn't say I'm quite 100% right now. I'd say I'm probably 90 something percent. The the good news is that the the injury was just soft tissue. So it was all the connective tissue back there, like my traps and and those muscles and my neck. Um and so that has all been healing pretty well. I've been like rolling it out on, on the cross balls and stretching it regularly and all that and got back into, you know, yoga and gymnastics and all these things. So um, forcing it to move through his range of motion. And so it's it's actually pretty close to, to healed. Yeah, good. Well, yeah. props for getting back on that horse uh, so fast. Oh, <laughs> uh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to get, I'm, I'm really into acro yoga and also gymnastics. That's another thing I'm, I'm doing now. Um, I found a beginner adult gymnastics class um, in my area over at MIT, actually. There's something really appealing to me right now. I don't know why about like being able to do a handstand and know how to like do a forward roll without hurting myself and do cartwheels just like really like not easy but sort of like basic fundamental body stuff is really interesting to me right now i imagine it's a little trickier you and i are about the same height we're both like six five right yeah. so it's i imagine gymnastics is a little bit trickier for us tall people yeah i mean i don't, I don't think i'm gonna i'm not gonna be a competitive gymnast but uh i mean i think the basics are not too bad for tall people i i guess i don't know it seems okay so far one cool thing is like all this with all this acro and yoga and gymnastics is like my mobility has definitely gotten a lot better and like my core has gotten a lot stronger and I noticed that it's improved my posture a good amount. Like just last night I was out with my roommate and he was like, I feel like you're taller than usual right now. And I was like, I think it's all the gymnastics stuff. It's like I'm, I'm just standing more straight and that's really cool. It feels good. That will reap its rewards, I think, for many years to come if posture is good, you know, like I've just seen so many programmers and people who sit at desks all day long who have bad posture habits, just like by the time they turn, I don't know, there's like some dividing line of number of friends who are early 40s at this point. And I think it was like when they were like maybe 38 or 37 or something, they like suddenly had a moment where like a week they were laid up and couldn't work because they had, you know pain shooting down their arms from their back and yeah yeah there's a pt i like kelly starrett and um he has a ton of youtube videos on her mobility wad mobility workout of the day and he says uh 
abusing your body is fine until it's not. It just like your body's pretty good at taking it for a while, and then it just suddenly will break down kind of catastrophically all at once. Yeah, it's not necessarily gradual. Sometimes it just flips. You know? Yeah, like the the I think the degradation is gradual, but you're, you kind of it's kind of hidden for a while. And I, I've had the sort of like slightly head forward posture for a long time that I've, I've started to notice. And like, I think that's kind of like having my hands in front of me all day, like using a mouse and keyboard, kind of not like standing up quite straight and just leaning over. And like over time, like it's, it's gotten harder and harder for me to come out of that posture. Like I, you kind of get like frozen in that posture. And so my head is just always a little bit farther forward than it should be. But it, it's getting a little bit better. Like now I'm just like looking in the mirror. And it's like, okay, it's like a, a little more up and down. Like it's kind of getting there as I like loosen up my upper back. And as like the muscle, like my shoulders are coming back a little bit. Because like my back is getting stronger compared to my chest now. So it's just, it's it's really cool to see. Like the posture stuff is honestly the the most exciting part to me right now. I just, it, it makes my, I feel better in my body. I feel like I can, I can stand straight like I'm supposed to. And it doesn't take as much effort. I'm going to move your body around in space kick right now. <laughs> that's good i think that's a good that's a good habit to keep up i would say <laughs> totally yeah and i'm gonna try to stay away from the uh head impact floor club for a little bit i would i would advise that <laughs> i'm i'm a born base as you might imagine like i belong on the ground <laughs> not being lifted unless <laughs> yeah. the other person is like really big and strong so i've i've learned my lesson yeah yep yeah so we want some more updates yeah what's what's going on let's talk business uh so i did a live stream last week where I uh, took a draft version of my screencast and basically performed it on Twitch for a handful of people. I got something like 30 people showing up, which is cool. In the middle of a day, it was like 4 p.m. Eastern or something, so or some, something like that. So it was not super convenient for U.S. folks. They're all at work, I assume. Uh, but still had a decent turnout and got some good feedback from people. And it wasn't a ton. Like The, the feedback was mostly kind of like, that was good. Yeah, I learned a lot of things. There were some small things here and there uh, that people offered as advice and i did roll those into the final screencast so it was kind of a nice effort i also saw a spike in uh, signups to my mailing list for like that that day and then the next day so seemed like a good a good thing to do and you, you use twitch for this does it get promoted through twitch at all like was that a channel where you received people or was it mostly from you sending out a link and promoting it i think it was mostly me sending out the link but Twitch does have like the ability to follow people. So like you can follow people and then you get an email when they when they go live. And I also got a whole bunch of new followers. I had some already and I got some new ones on Twitch. I think I'm at like 50 or something or 100 somewhere on there. It's a bit of its own channel. I think if I did it regularly, it would it would could definitely blossom into to more of a thing. You were kind of doing this partially to experiment with performing your video as a talk right like to, to kind of mimic that format do you feel like it had benefits in that regard like doing it live all the prep that goes into that um, or it didn't make a huge difference i think i think the final video was better because i had another run under my belt and because there was some feedback from people as i was doing it that was helpful but i don't think it was like a it wasn't a big change the the final video was mostly kind of what i had already planned got it Cool. Good to experiment nonetheless. Yeah, I, I may do another one or two of those. I also will try probably moving the time around if I do. Uh, something in the evening might be a little more easy. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, so now I have six videos done, which is pretty cool because I'm thoroughly past the halfway point, <laughs> definitively past halfway. And so it feels like, okay, now I can. I just got to chip away at two to four more videos and I'm I'm good to go. I have like life developments happening at the same time. So 
I'm good. I've decided to move out of my apartment. Okay. Away from the hospital. I live in, <laughs> away from the hospital. Yeah. Oh my God. I was re- when I was recording the sixth video, it was ridiculous. <laughs> I, like within five minutes, there was two ambulances, a truck driving by super loud, uh, people doing construction across the street yeah. and a life flight helicopter. Yeah. Oh my God. It was just, I was, <laughs> I, I thought about saving the, like I, I edit out all of this stuff, but I thought about saving the, the things where I'm just like, God damn it. And like, it's just like, I'll get a good take. And then like, you know, the ambulance goes by and like, it just, there's, there was a lot of those. Like I've cut out a whole bunch of things of me just reacting to noise. Then table flipping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what was the original thing? Oh, you're moving. Yeah, so it's, you're moving. Yeah. Yeah. I'm moving. So my roommate is moving out and I looked around for roommates a little bit and no one amazing came forward. And I'm realizing there's not really much reason for me to be in downtown Boston. And it's basically the most expensive place in the city. So I'm going to move a little bit more outside the city to a place called Davis Square, which is kind of like a, a funkier, slightly younger, slightly hipper, slightly cheaper area. <laughs> it's I, I haven't quite figured out the logistics yet, but it's August 3rd right now. And I signed a lease that restarts on September 1st. Oh, okay. So, based, <laughs> so after this call, I'm going to call my landlord and be like, so hi, I don't want to live here. What can I do? <laughs> Um, and I'm not sure what's in the lease in terms of like like what my uh, like what happens if I try to break it, or I'm not sure what she's going to say. We have a good relationship, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I'm sure it varies state by state. I know, like here in Minnesota, because we we had to re- make a lease resigning decision in May. Like they wanted to know three months in advance, which to me felt pretty far in advance. But I don't know. I think it's my landlord asked for it in March. Yeah. I think it's probably standard in more competitive markets where they can basically just ask you to do that. Yeah, I've had to think about this lease stuff a little bit and I've looked into like what the process would be if I wanted to break it. And I think here it's like you're basically on the hook through the end of the lease. But if you can, you can either sublet it or just help them find and they'll look to but help them find a, a replacement tenant, which and if you're in a hop in area, then maybe it wouldn't be too difficult to. Yeah, my understanding is in Massachusetts, based on just some hearsay, is that it's the landlord's obligation to try to find a new tenant. And this area is super popular. I don't and, and she has a, this is a nice unit. So I don't I think she just will find a tenant, maybe not for September 1st, because it's so soon. But maybe we compromise and say, I'll move out, you know, I'll move out in time for October 1st or something. Um, so I may end up on the hook for some months. But I figure like, if I have to keep the apartment and pay for it, I could Airbnb it. I could Airbnb part of it. I have kind of a lot of options, so I'm I'm not too worried about it. But the the, the big picture is that I'm going to get out of here at some point soon. But it creates an interesting time pressure. So now I basically have... It could be that she wants me out of here in time for September 1st, which means I have uh, 29 days or so to finish my course. Or I'd like to be done with the course. I'd like to have it done and launched so that in September, I can do a meetup tour, which I think I talked about last time on this podcast. So I want to have the freedom to go around and do things. And so I'd like to already have my moving situation sort of resolved. But I think the way I'm going to resolve it is not get a new place right away. I think I'm going to just basically pare down my stuff as much as possible and get as much of it out of the apartment as possible. Maybe put a little bit over it like my parents' house or something. But I think I kind of want to get down to basically a backpack possession-wise. And then that will be what I'm doing for September. And I'll maybe have an Airbnb in Boston uh, as like a home base or something but the whole like let, let's like let's let's strip this way down definitely appeals have you seen the documentary on netflix called minimalism it's like these Mm-mm. it's 
these two guys, they're, they've wrote, written a book and they go on a tour, but they've, they're basically talking all about this and speaking about their minimalist habits. And I mean, they're, they're pretty hardcore down to like all possessions in one backpack. A lot of that appeals to me. I don't think I could actually go that far, but like moving from a 2000 square foot house to an apartment here when I moved across the country was definitely like, I mean, I had not even filled my house with possessions, but it was still like quite a bit of paring down. And overall, that was a great exercise. I really liked that. I think now I could probably live in an even smaller space. Like now that I've pared down some more, I think there's even more paring down I could do. So I think it's, it's always, it always feels good to get rid of stuff. <laughs> it does. It does. And that's totally my jam. Like my apartment is maybe 700 square feet and I share it with somebody else. So there's, I just don't have that much stuff to begin with. And so there, I wouldn't have a long way to go to get down to that level, but it still appeals a lot to get to just go all the way. It's like just just let go of, of things, maybe store some of it, but really consolidate down to what matters and what's awesome. I have like a vacation planned in this month in August. I'm taking uh, five nights at a lake house with some friends. So my time to, if I want to ship and have my living situation, like get get rid of all my stuff and have a plan for like try to book a, a tour for September. Like the, all of a sudden, it's like, wow, that's a lot to do in August. Yeah. So, and that maybe yeah. that might be a healthy time pressure for you. You know, totally. Some, sometimes deadlines totally. help. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they definitely do. I I, I work better with the frantic panic of an approaching deadline, <laughs> or at least I, I work more reliably. We should say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And with that in mind, do you have like a concrete schedule laid out? Are your days? That's planned? a good question. <laughs> I don't. I haven't. I haven't gone that far yet. Okay. But. I I mean, I have one, two, like about two and a half weeks until I leave for the lake house. And I feel like I need to be done with recording before then so that when I come back from the lake house, I can immediately launch. That's actually not too bad because I've done two videos in a week before. So I think like the next two weeks, I could get two videos done each mm-hmm. and then be done. And that's 10 videos is the count, right? Yeah. 10 videos is my ru- yeah and i may not end up with 10 i have at least two i think i think the course could use two more for sure that like, I, th- I think would be really good additions but then, then the three and four are, i don't really have in mind so i may finish those two and be like you know i've said most of what i want to say and 10 is round but who cares like i'm just gonna stop it where i stop it have you nailed down your pricing for this i haven't okay yeah that's actually a, a sort of a variable i haven't been thinking about which is i really would like to have multiple tiers and because I think it really helps maximize revenue, but I haven't thought almost at all about what goes in the upper tiers. Or I, I have no conclusive plan there. I've I've brainstormed, but so I, I feel like most things I could do would mean more work. And so it's it's kind of not ideal. There is there is appeal to me in the simplicity of just like just make it one thing and then just go. Or I could say half the videos are the lower tier, and then you want all of them. It's a high tier. I don't know something. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure. I've seen a bunch of people do this and it, it makes a lot of sense because it lets you more or less price discriminate. Like there are people that want to give you or can give you $250. And if all you have is a $79 price point, like you just missed out on that. But then you need to make sure that $250 is worth it as compared to the $79. So what goes in there? Don't know yet. And then so I have, um, I have a story as well that I thought I would share. It's kind of a weird story. But I'm kind of a weird guy. So here we go. One of my hobbies is I sing in a barbershop quartet, which is four people singing a cappella. And I've been doing it for a long time. I love it a lot. And I do it quite a bit. 
about a month ago, I went to Las Vegas for the international barbershop competition. There's a big competition once a year. And we threw a party in a hotel room while we were there. And we stumbled on this idea. So there's already so there's, there's a concept in barbershop called a tag. And a tag refers to like the last handful of seconds of a song. And it's actually very common to get together with other barbershoppers and sing popular tags to songs. Because the end of the song resolves in a very satisfying way. Like it's like, like sets it up. And then it gives you the, res- the resolution. It's like, ah, it's like really, it just, it's very satisfying to sing. And so people will often sing just the last like 10 seconds or so of popular songs. And it's called getting together and singing tags. People do it all the time. So we had a party and stumbled on this idea of like, what if we s- said not just tags, but you could also do intros. And intros is kind of a weird idea because an intro sets you up for something, but doesn't actually deliver on it. And it kind of had this like weird twist on the, the idea. Like, it's like, ba-dum, ba-dum, bum, bum. And then you would just stop. And, it's, and it, like, it was kind of like, it got a laugh every time. And like, we're like, this is kind of fun. Like, let's just think of our like favorite intros and sing intros. And it was just kind of like, this, like fun, like turn this idea on its head. So we had an intros and tags party and we, we enjoyed it. And so when we came back home, uh, a friend of mine decided to throw another intros and tags party. And the, the idea was, we're just going to sing the, int- the start or the end or both, but not whole songs. So people show up at the party. There's like 10 people there. And it's happening. Like people are singing just the intros. It's getting laughs. It's fun. We're singing the end sometimes, singing the tags. And it's a good time. And as no, new people show up, we tell them what's going on. Hey, we're, like, we're not doing full songs. We're just doing the intros. It's kind of like a weird thing. Like, oh, that's goofy. And then they would do it too. And it was, it was enjoyable. That went on for maybe an hour and a half or so. And then a really big group arrived all together. So a bunch of people showed up and, and like kind of roughly doubled the party size all at once. And something that I noticed that happened was the new people weren't just singing intros and tags. They were singing full songs. And some of the existing people were like, oh, we're just doing intros and tags. And they're like, oh, hmm, okay. And it didn't quite stick. And so suddenly the like culture of the party shifted where that thing that we were doing passed down as like the oral history of the party where we were only singing intros and tags went away. And people at first were like, hey, we're only doing this. We're only... And, but like that only kind of happened a number of times and people started to give up. And then that just sort of went away and the, the whole thing shifted. And I found that experience really interesting and I couldn't help but feel like this is just like a cultural microcosm. And started thinking about like culture at companies, like when you're hiring people, for example, where there's a bunch of traditions that are mostly just passed down and adhered to because that's kind of a thing that we do here and, and, and something we're into or something we think is fun or interesting. And when you add new people slowly, they have time to learn and there's enough of a critical mass of other people demonstrating that behavior and holding other people to that standard. But if when too many people showed up all at once, it became impossible to make that happen and it went away. Yeah. That is, I mean, that it, that's essentially what I think we at, at Drip attribute a lot to our what we consider to be our healthy culture is hiring slow and carefully and, and like very like we're very picky in terms of who we add to the team. And Rob is really good at this and has I, I feel like I've been mentored by him in a lot because I've I now sat through a lot of interviews with him and we'll be talking to the candidate and then we'll come out and we'll kind of start evaluating like something was just not quite like something felt off about this person, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. And being able to like actually quantify like, well, it's this, it's this personality trait where they kind of come off too brash in this regard, or they kind of talked over me right here. Like 
things that I'm not necessarily tuned in on picking up on. It's a, it's a honed skill, but I think like if, if you allow those things to slip by gradually, you can end up with like an overly aggressive culture or a, a culture where people don't respect each other's views. And now like it's the communication style could totally shift if you dump a bunch of new people onto the team, you know? Um, totally. And it, it could shift if you hire someone that's not willing to take on the, the new culture or the existing culture, right? Or it could shift if you took on too many people who may, might have been willing to take on that culture, but are unable to because there's just not enough... The ratio is off. There's not enough people there demonstrating it and sharing it with them. Right. And so it's so they've developed their new one, and maybe it's better and maybe it's worse, you know? But you've right. lost control at that point, right? Right, exactly. This thing that you were trying to do, this thing you thought you had established is can go away. Yeah. Yeah. huh yeah that's a cool story i I like that yeah thanks yeah i thought it was kind of kind of interesting yeah it really struck me at the time Mm -hmm. and it took it had a little build-up took a while to get there but interesting (laughs) i love the jumping across between barbershop and business like that's a great (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 i was thinking about uh turning that into a blog post that would make a great blog post oh thank you it feels like it should be on medium you know Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) it's about it's about about culture and a story i want to tell with you yep but yeah nice cool. um so that's it that's it for me this week and i'm curious okay. how you're doing and what you're up to yeah we're, i'm doing good we're, we've been just doing a lot of like behind the scenes technical stuff there's some features in the works but nothing to nothing big to reveal at this moment but as far as the technical side goes um one of the things i've been working on uh, these days i tend to to bite off smaller initiatives because i'm doing a lot of other kind of team management and code review and stuff like that but one of the ones i've been working on is um pulling out our free trial in drip because we have a free plan and for a while it's been like start your free trial for your free plan and then in 21 days we will not bill you (laughs) so it becomes confusing for the user like people are it's been a point of confusion like why am i signing up for a trial when it's on a free plan and so this is just gonna make it a lot more clear like you know when you sign up, if you self-select a higher plan, which does have some a few additional features that you don't get on the free plan. So if you do self-select a higher plan, we bill you that day and your billing period starts. And then one month from now, you know, the cadence continues. And if you sign up for a free plan, then obviously you don't pay anything up front, but you put your credit card on file. And then if you do cross your threshold, then we auto upgrade you on that day and you become a paying customer. So... Do you not have a, a, a trial period now then? There will no longer be a trial period. But if you want a trial, all you have to do is sign up for the free plan. And then it's like basically an indefinite trial as long as you don't cross over into over 100 subscribers. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense to do this. Um, it's not something we wanted to do right away when launching the free plan because we weren't sure if the free plan was here to stay or if we would need to roll it back. And it's been nice. I'm glad that we, this is one of the scenarios where I'm glad we built our own billing engine because we actually had most of the ability to to remove the, the trial already built in. Like a lot of conditionals that said like, if trial length is zero on the plan you're choosing, then behave accordingly, like bill them immediately. Otherwise, wait until their next billing period to bill them. And that's just a bit of custom logic that we probably wouldn't have gotten if we, if we hadn't, you know, had our own billing engine from the get-go. So... Are you planning on testing? Because removing a trial feels like a pretty big change to me. Yeah. So honestly, I think this one is not going to be split tested. We we kind of debated it and there's enough moving parts. There's Imagine there's like the marketing website as copy on there about it. 
And then there's the application itself that handles the, the billing side of things. And then there's all of our workflows, like follow-up sequences that either nudge you and say, like, you're about to start your trial or you're this many days into your trial and all that copy has to be changed, re-implemented. So there's actually a lot of moving parts, so many that we determined it was going to be overly burdensome to try to test it. And in this case, just kind of go with our go with what we feel is right and, you know, which is the conclusion is this is causing way too much confusion and just shift it over. I've had to make that decision a bunch of times. It, it, it often does turn out that those things are, are really annoying to test. Could you just remove the copy? Like if you just tested, if your B were just all we do is we don't tell you you get a trial on the marketing site and watch conversion from there and see what happens. Would that be a valid test? Potentially. I'm not sure. We might already actually have removed a lot of the trial language to reduce confusion already. Um, so I think a lot of the confusion was coming like after someone signs up, they may not even realize that they're on a trial technically, but now they're getting emails saying like, hey, you've just started your trial. Uh, make sure you get set up in the next 21 days. And that that was the part that was mostly confusing was kind of in the in the follow-up workflows and the billing emails and stuff like that. So I think it was less confusion up front, more confusion while using the app now that you're getting the follow-up emails. So, and that's the part that's pretty, pretty tricky to, to split test. Yeah, you would need some sort of yeah. split testing functionality in Drip. <laughs> if only. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were also, uh, this week we're, we're cutting over to Rails 5 from Rails 4. We're on the latest 4. Early days of Drip, we were slower to jump rails versions just because that was that can be pretty time consuming and it wasn't something we wanted to distract us but in more recent years we've been trying to stay on top of rails versions which has served us pretty well we've had some from friends like ruben i think ruben with BidSketch was an example of like he was stuck on on rails 2 i think for a long time and it was just the longer you stay there the more painful the upgrade process is so trying to avoid that pain but yeah, we wanted to give Rails 5 a good amount of time to to shake out its bugs and stuff. Um, How was the upgrade process? Um, so it's been pretty smooth, but I think the biggest change that happened this time was they changed the way parameter handling works, or they made it even stricter, like the strong params in controllers. So like a bun- there are a number of places where we were kind of bypassing the built-in Ruby safety mechanisms because we were just passing like form object data into some service object that was already doing its cleansing of the data. So we were just in a number of cases just passing kind of params through. But I think you, we had to go through and change a lot of those to like unsafe underscore params and then like cast it to a hash directly. And there's changes with like hash within different access. And I hate those kinds of changes because it's like those could potentially slip through and Rails is trying to protect you. So it's like uh, blanking out fields or dropping fields that it thinks may be malicious. And you could end up in a scenario where like things are breaking, but they're not throwing exceptions. And that's the worst kind of failure, in my opinion. I did a grab bag video uh, for my course. And one of the tips was about preferring the save bang and update bang and create bang alternatives because it's just so easy to silently fail to save a thing and it doesn't raise any sort of alarm and you keep going and the world is not good right i'm I'm a fan in general of like the what is it like the opposite of defensive programming where it's like you let things fail hard if the happy path Mm -hmm. doesn't doesn't occur so then you know 
Yeah, either add explicit error handling to handle edge cases or you let things fail really noisily so that they, they pop up on your radar. Also, another big backend initiative we're working on is um, replacing Capistrano with Amazon's code deploy system that kind of works in tandem with auto-scaling groups. Hmm. Um, and this has been... I haven't heard Capistrano spoken aloud in a long time. Really? <laughs> yeah. Through all my ThoughtBot time, we were using Heroku. And so just deploying oh, was yeah, a whole different thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's still around and it still works pretty well, I think. Um, they did like a rewrite uh, a couple of years ago. So it was like kind of more standardized, very similar to rake tasks or even using rake tasks under the covers, I think. So, you know, Capstrano has been a nice little tool for us. But um, yeah, it's time to time to upgrade to a system that can basically work well with auto scaling groups so imagine like we have a fleet of front-end servers and then we determine that load is sufficiently high that we need to add a few more instances and amazon has built-in tooling where i can say all right i'll just spin up a couple of instances drop them into the load balancer and not require manual intervention at all but in order to do that you have to have you have to have AMIs where like the base image of your servers lives and then you need some way for the auto scaling mechanism to automatically deploy the latest copy of your code onto those servers when it spins them up. So, I mean, I'm not super surprised by it. It has been a much more complicated endeavor than the engineers taking it on originally envisioned. I think yeah, we had, sounds fiddly. We had put like a few weeks on it. We're like, yeah, give us like three to four weeks. We'll have like the first pass at this ready. And it's, it's like coming on to month four, I think <laughs> of like a background thread. We're like maybe one week out from being able to fully cut over to that. Okay, nice. <laughs> it's just painful, you know. Yeah, it sounds painful. When we were on Startups, the rest of us, uh, I think Rob asked both of us if we saw ourselves still working on technical things in the future, like still staying in the code. And we both said yes. But like one of the things that gives me pause is, is I don't ever want to think about that. Like, I don't ever want to do that project that your people are doing right now. That sounds awful to me. And so I'm, I'm interested in certain parts of the technical side. But God, deployment just to me is such an uninteresting problem space. When you get to a certain scale, then you really need to start thinking of your development team as kind of DevOps operations infrastructure and then the ones building the features. And early on, like there's no distinction. It's like you all wear many hats. You're all responsible for keeping the servers up and all this stuff. But ideally for me, like I... If I'm envisioning how a future app would go, it would be like, maybe I'm doing a lot of technical work and it's hosted on Heroku or some kind of platform as a service where deployment is not a thing I have to worry about. And then at the point where it scales to the point where you have to move off of that and get onto more custom low-level hardware, then you can have a team hired to completely manage that part of it. Yeah, that sounds good. I think that's the ideal scenario. <laughs> okay, let's, let's do that. Resolved. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Yeah. I actually had a question I wanted to throw at you too, because it's it's a it's a conversation that has off and on arisen with our team, especially as we add more people hiring a new engineer starting in two weeks. So adding another body to the this is on the core product team to build kind of core features. So we've been mostly focusing on scaling up the back end team. So time to add someone to the front end. Um, but this conversation keeps arising and it's around our code review processes. So if you if you rewind back like a year, pretty much everything was getting signed off by me and I would do like a final look. 
And then we kind of have since subdivided and now we have a backend team and a core product team. Right now, like the, the written process is that every PR should get signed off by a team lead before it goes into production. And sometimes that becomes a bottleneck, especially if if the one who's has final review responsibilities is also producing code, then there's a contention there of like, well, I've been busy writing code and I haven't gotten a chance to to jump over to reviews. So I'm curious to get another data point from you on like what kind of review processes have you seen um, in your different gigs? I don't think I've ever worked in a system where we had a specific person that had to sign off on things. Like the, the ThoughtBot way was that someone else is going to look at this, but that someone else is kind of determined on the fly. And it may be that there's an ideal someone else, or maybe that just it could just be anybody. Or maybe the, it may be that the ideal somebody is too busy, and so you just go with someone else. Yeah, just, just intuitively having a specific person sounds like it could be hard. Like that sounds pretty bottlenecky. And it may be that your team leads are the best person every time, but I would be surprised if that were always true. I could see like other people being like, oh, well, you worked a lot on this whatever part. Why don't, why don't you review, review this instead? I mean, I, I will admit the teams I work on, worked on were usually smaller. And so it was maybe three developers usually. I did have a couple of clients where we had maybe 10 developers or something, but we were already kind of in our own little pods of three roughly. So you're kind of hitting these problems that I haven't quite run into personally. Yeah, my my gut is like, I don't think this is going to scale. I think it has served us well in keeping our ratio of bugs to not bugs pretty low. <laughs> it has been, I, I feel like it's been an important part of our keeping quality high and keeping code, entering the code base consistent. You know, as I think through it, like it could be something that we need to gradually work towards shifting where it's like, you know, maybe folks are feeling like because things go through review and get get checked for consistency and all that, that it's almost like a it's not properly incentivizing people to to be on top of that. You know, I feel like that's I feel like that's where QA having a, a QA team could be a crutch where, you know, I've talked to a number of folks who have worked on teams that have a QA team and they're like, yeah, I definitely like whether consciously or unconsciously have relaxed my standards a bit because they come to rely on things getting caught by QA, you know? And so maybe there's, maybe there's like a similar dynamic where like certain things people are just maybe unconsciously not paying as close attention to because they figure it'll get brought up in review if it's a problem. I don't know. I mean, I, I've done that before, but for, for me, it was usually, I'm not sure if this is a, if this way makes sense to solve this but I'll see what code review says. Like I, I would always self-review before I even open a PR. I'm looking at the diff myself and trying to do like a pass as if it were new to me. I feel like it probably would result in fewer bugs net net if there are people whose job it is just to look for them. It's probably possible to have a well-functioning system that has a QA team. But I think one of the things to proactively manage is to make sure that developers don't feel like it's something that they can fall back on. Like they like that you have to test your own code less because you figure it'll get caught in QA. Like that's something I'm very aware of and like very cautious of. Yeah, I could see that happening, I guess. It's an on, it's just something I've been thinking about, you know, it's an ongoing like making sure that as the team scales that we're not trying to apply the same principles that have worked well on a small scale to a larger scale and figure out where, where are the right places to to morph our methodology. The combination of 
automated tests from a TDD process plus code review on all the projects I've worked on have meant that the defect rate was low enough that it didn't feel like a primary concern. Like it was never the biggest concern or even close to it on the projects I was on. And so it was kind of, I guess it was good enough. Are you getting more defects as you scale up, like per person? We're not. We're not. I I feel like our overall rate of bugs entering production, technical incidents overall, is still pretty low. And I don't know. I don't know what's causal here. I don't know if it's because, I don't know if that's because of our process or just incidentally, like (laughs) we have this process that's maybe bottlenecking things. And maybe that's not the reason why quality is staying high. I don't know. Well, I know code review is a big contributor to defect reduction. So, but the question is, is your particular variant of it part of like helping or could it just be that anybody could review things and and catch the same things? Like, I I think there's actually an an argument to be made for people not familiar with the code base or that particular part of the code reviewing a commit or a PR. We would sometimes even do that in Thoughtbot. Like people would sometimes ask for a review for code in a language that some people didn't even know. Like people would throw up a Swift PR because you can look through and you can just say like, do I understand the names? Does the structure look okay? Are there deeply nested conditionals? Is this method super long? You can review a certain number of things even without really knowing how the language works. So maybe that like the, the fresh eyes of a different person are even better than someone who's intimately familiar with that code. Mm-hmm. And another another aspect of this that kind of points in the direction of of having a more peer review model is knowledge dissemination. Like if someone's working on someone's working on a particular feature and their peer has not seen that yet, then that's a good opportunity for the peer to get up to speed on what's going in on that side of things too. So I think that could be yeah, the follow on effects of code review, I think are really positive. Yeah. And then I think the final, the final component is more pairing, <laughs> which pairing seems to be the answer to a lot of ills <laughs> in programming. If you just get two smart minds working on the same problem, achieving consensus on things and checking each other's errors, like I know anytime I've paired with someone where I would normally have the review responsibilities, it makes it makes the review part almost take no time because I'm like, yep, I've been right there with you working on it. And I know I feel confident this is good. We both feel confident this is good. So, yeah, I've actually when I've paired with someone on something, I you, I almost always try to get a third person to look at it. I feel mm-hmm. like once you've worked on it, you kind of can't review it because it's, it's pretty easy to have a blind spot yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the but the knowledge transfer and the qual like is so high, and the quality is so high. I, I think it's totally worth it. And I think the likelihood that there is a a fatal flaw in that code is pretty low, or it's lower when you've paired. Yeah, the review to me is is I would say less essential. If you wanted to commit something without a review and you had paired on it, it's kind of like okay, well, yeah, sure, it's probably that code is probably okay. There was an implicit review continuously. Yep. So that's what I've been thinking about. That about wraps it up for me. Okay. Uh, if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.